0: Point Church sermons. This sermon was preached by Pastor Scott Kappelman during a Sunday worship service. We hope you enjoy and share the message. If you would, I would love for you to turn to John chapter 1, the same place that we've been studying for the last several weeks. Instead of giving you a prologue, because we're talking about the prologue of John, it's the backstory of Jesus's life. Instead of giving you a prologue from a literary work or a television show, today I just want to kind of talk about our personal prologue that we're going through here in Starkville, Mississippi. And that is that last week, um, obviously everyone in the room knows that Coach Mike Leach passed away very suddenly. And it was a great shock to um, our entire city and to the university in particular and to really anybody who's a part of the Mississippi State family. Marshall Ramsey is one of our great cartoonists from Mississippi, and I think I have a slide that shows a cartoon that he drew in light of Coach Leach's death. Uh, Some of you may have seen this this week, but one of the things I've thought about is there are some truths that come out of a death like this that we need to review and remind ourselves and so that's kind of what I want to do as a prologue to get to John chapter 1 today is to remind you of three quick death reminders. One is this death can strike anyone anytime. And we saw that last week. Uh, none of us probably dreamed that we would be sitting here on this particular day and getting ready for a memorial service on Tuesday, but death can strike anyone anytime. Number two, Death stings those who remain. Coach Mike Leach has entered into eternity, good or bad. He's entered into eternity. But the ones who are struggling with it are the ones who remain behind. Death stings those who remain. And then number three, death solution is found only in Jesus. The only solution for anyone's death, the only hope for eternity for anyone is found in Jesus. And I hope that these reminders will help us set the stage for what we're going to talk about in John chapter 1. So if you have your Bible, I would love to go to John chapter 1 because it is a prologue. In those first 18 verses, before John goes into a description of seven signs, remember when you're reading the Gospel of John, there are going to be seven signs, and through those seven signs, John is going to try to prove to those who are reading that Jesus was the Son of God, And He was the Messiah. And by the time He finishes, and we'll get to this verse a little bit later, but when He gets to chapter 20, after going through those seven signs, seven ways to prove that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, He says, I've written all of these things, and I could have written more, but I've written them so that you might believe in Jesus as your Savior. So that's his goal in writing the gospel is for it to be evangelistic and to make sure that those who read know who Jesus is and then put their faith in Him. So he uses the first 18 verses as a prologue to give us the backstory of who Jesus is. And in the week number one, we saw that before Jesus was a baby in Bethlehem, He was the Creator who spoke all things into existence but in st- in, and also He holds it all together currently. That's what we often forget, is that not only was Jesus the Creator who spoke it into existence, He holds it all together currently as we see it in 2022. That was in week number one. That was one of the things in the prologue about Jesus that He revealed to us. Then John said, last week, Jesus, before He was the baby in Bethlehem, He was the light who dispels and defeats the darkness. When Jesus came, He began to push back the darkness, but not only did He push it back, His death on the cross, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension, and His promise of a return, it also defeated darkness once and for all. And so Jesus is the light who dispels and who defeats the darkness. And those are the first two things that John has taught us in the prologue about Jesus. The backstory. Before you get to Bethlehem, you need to know He's the Creator and He's the light. Well, today I want to come to the third thing that we find, and that is that Jesus is the Word. The Word. W-O-R-D. So if you'll go to John chapter 1, I just want to look at two particular places. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then if you'll jump down to verse 14, I just want to read the first portion of verse 14, not the entire verse. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So it's led me to ask, this, this seems to be an emphasis in John's Gospel, the Word. And he's introducing us to Jesus. Before he gets into the seven signs, he says one of the things you need to know about Jesus is He is the Word. Well, what did that mean in the first century what did the people who read this about jesus's life and his ministry his death his burial resurrection when they read jesus was the word what did that mean to them in the first century because we often read the scripture in 2022 as though god wrote this to us and he did it has timeless principles that apply to all of us but the original audience were not those of us who lived in 2022 It was not written for us originally. It was written for people in the first century. So what did this concept of the Word say to the people in the first century about who Jesus was? One of the things I believe, I'm going to give you four today. One of the things that I think the Word revealed about Jesus is it it revealed His identity. It revealed His identity. Now go with me to verse 1, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, And the word was with God. And then this is the key phrase I want us to think about in terms of his identity. And the word was God. The word was God. Who was Jesus? He was God in the flesh. Well, why why would John choose this concept of word, W-O-R-D? Why would he choose that concept to communicate the identity of Jesus being that of God in the flesh? Well, the reason is because when you start, remember, there's a connector between John's gospel and the book of Genesis. It's almost like John is saying, hey, you got the story of the beginning of humanity in Genesis. Well, now I want to give it to you again and remind you that the first humanity failed in their attempt to do what God had created them to do. But this Jesus that I'm introducing, he's not going to fail. And so he takes us back and reintroduces us to the very same concepts from Genesis in the gospel of john so if we go back to genesis we'll see that in the beginning god would often speak and when god spoke things happened whenever god spoke things happened. go to genesis chapter one these are not things that you don't know if you're a believer in jesus christ you've heard these referred to many many times but just as a refresher genesis 1 verse 3 then genesis 1 verse 6 then genesis 1 verse 9 are just three illustrations of what we could find throughout the book our first chapter of Genesis. But here it is in chapter 1, verse 3. Then God said, there's the word being spoken. God spoke a word, and what happened out of that word being spoken? Let there be light, and what happened? There was light. The original in Genesis 1 is God speaking the word. And creation begins to exist. You go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 6. Then God said, God spoke words, let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. So God spoke, and things happened. He was the Word. Verse 9 Then God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. So in Genesis, you've got this concept of God speaking the word. And when he spoke, things happened. And so John's making this connection for us to say, Jesus is God. He speaks and things happen. He is God in the flesh. This is huge for us to understand this morning that Jesus is not the son of God. He's not the son of God in terms of being a created being. He's the son of God. He is God in the flesh and the word was communicating his identity. And that's why John wrote in chapter one, verse one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. It doesn't say and the word was created by God. It was the word was God. It gives us a picture of the identity of Jesus. The second thing that I think it teaches us as we think about this today is it also teaches us about the eminence of Jesus, the eminence. Now, this is a concept that maybe you haven't thought about. I had not thought about it myself until I taught an intro to religion course at Mississippi State for several semesters when they were a little shorthanded in the religion department. And in the textbook that they gave me, it had a chapter on transcendence and eminence. And I thought it was a very helpful chapter for me personally because in every world religion, there is a description of a God who's transcendent, but there are very few world religions, almost none outside of the Christian faith and the Jewish faith, that talk about a God who's eminent, who's close by. Most of the gods that are described in most world religions are transcendent. They live above and they live beyond human life. But in the Jewish faith, the Jewish God came to live among them. The Christian faith talks about the same, and that's the concept of eminence. Jesus was God in the flesh, so God comes to abide with us, He comes close to us. Why is this so significant? Well, think about the whole book of Genesis. When we read Genesis chapter 1, And we read Genesis chapter 2. In the future, when you read that, don't just read it as creation. Would you read it from now on as a description of a temple that is being built? And in that temple, the God who's creating the temple wants to abide in the temple with the people He's created. So really, Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 are a description of a temple layout. Do you know that throughout the Bible, there's this over- arching concept of tabernacles and temples being created multiple times. Why? Because it started in Genesis 1. God established His creation as a temple, a location where He was going to abide with His people. What do we find in Genesis 1 and 2 until we come to the sin of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3? Every day it says God came and He walked with them in the cool of the day. God came down and He visited with His people. He walked among them. That's eminence. He's a transcendent God. He's a holy God. He is distinct and separate from us, but His desire was always to walk among us. So He created this beautiful environment in the Garden of Eden. It was His first temple, and He came to abide with His people, and He walked with them daily until something happened. Adam and Eve chose to disobey the one single directive they were given you cannot eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil one single command they couldn't obey it and once they ate and they disobeyed god what happened they began to pull away and hide because they did not want to be in the presence of the god who walked among them So when God comes in Genesis three, he says to Adam, where are you? He knew where he was. He was asking that question more for Adam and Eve's benefit than his own. He wanted to show Adam and Eve, you have done something that has broken this desired intimacy, this eminence, me being close to you. You've broken it and now you've pulled away. And from that point forward. It was always God's desire to reconnect with his people in a temple location. So what did the people do? Later, when they came out of Egyptian slavery under the hand of Moses, they built a tabernacle under God's direction. He tells Moses and he tells the skilled laborers how to build this beautiful tabernacle that will sit in the middle of their camp. I've got a slide that shows the tabernacle sat in the middle. There were three tribes of Judah on one side. There were three on the other. There were three above it. There were three below it. And why is that so? Because God wanted to be in the middle of, eminently close to His people. That tabernacle represented where He was going to live among the people. That was always His desire. Then they go into the promised land. When they get into the promised land, they decide to forsake God. Would you go with me to Judges for just a moment? Judges chapter 21. The last verse of the book of Judges reminds us that once the people crossed into the promised land, where God was going to abide with them, they began to do what they wanted to do. And as a result, the relationship, the eminence of God, was lost again. Would you look in verse 25? "In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what seemed whatever was right to Him. They kept living like Adam and Eve. We're going to do what we want. We're not going to live close to you, God. We're going to live however we want. And as a result, when you go to 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, one of the problems is once they're in the promised land and the judges continue for a season, it says in chapter 3 of 1 Samuel, verse 1, the boy Samuel served in the Lord Eli's presence. In those days, the word, here it is, the word of the Lord was rare and prophetic visions were not widespread. What happened? God started pulling away because the people were pulling away. And this desired em, eminence was lost. Then, then later, they built a beautiful temple in Solomon's era of time. What is God again doing? He's establishing in the promised land, I'm going to have a central location, a temple location where I can abide with you and we can be together again. And the Holy Spirit empowered those people to build this beautiful temple. Then the glory of God fell. But do you know what happens? Over time, they begin to disobey just like Adam and Eve. They broke the relationship with God. So what does God do in Ezekiel? Would you go with me to Ezekiel chapter 10? Sometimes when I read the book of Ezekiel, I'm thinking, what in the world is going on? But in Ezekiel chapter 10, we find that one of the things Ezekiel was saying to the people is because of your sin, the glory of God in the temple is departing and you don't even realize it. So in Ezekiel chapter 10, I'm going to read verse 18. This is what it says. Then the glory of the Lord moved away from the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. That's Ezekiel's way of saying God's glory fell in the temple when you built it, but because of your sin, He's moving out. He's leaving. That brings us to Jesus. Jesus came in the flesh. He's bringing God's eminence to us. And do you know what the temple is now? The place where He wants to abide? It's your heart and it's my heart. He wants to literally move right inside of us. And when we surrender our lives to Jesus and we make Him the Word, He comes to live and abide in us. And this all goes back to Genesis. And where does it end? In Revelation. What happens in Revelation 21 and 22? The new heaven and the new earth appears and there's no need for light. Why? Because God will dwell with His people for all eternity. It's a bookend story. God's desire has always been He's a transcendent God, but He eminently wants to live near us. He tried it in the Garden of Eden. It failed because of humanity's sin. He's tried through the tabernacle. He tried through the temple. He's now given Jesus as the prime example for us so He can live in our hearts. And one day, He's going to come back and He's going to live on this earth and He's going to reign forever. And He's going to do that so that He can be with His people forever. He's an eminent God. He's not transcendent, even though He could be. He desires to be near you and near me. And the only way to do that is through Jesus. And that's why He's the Word took on flesh to become one of us the third thing this word the term word tells us about jesus is his identification not his identity we talked about his identity minute. his identification he identifies with you and with me would you go back to verse 14 he was in the world or verse 14 the word became flesh and dwelt among us he became flesh he has experienced everything that you and i have experienced This is why it says to us in Hebrews chapter 4. If you'll go to Hebrews chapter 4 for just a minute. We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us, but we have one who fully understands us because he took on our flesh. For we do not have a high priest in Hebrews 4.15 who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are and yet without sin. He has identified with us. And when they read the term word, and they understood that he became flesh. They got it. This is a Jesus who knows us and understands us. But then the last thing I would say to you is there's an invitation. Whenever you read the concept word, there's an invitation. That's the final concept. That brings us back to John chapter 20, where I started a moment ago with the concept of what John was doing with his gospel. And in John chapter 20, it says in verse 31, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. The reason John wanted to introduce Jesus as the Word is he eventually wanted to introduce us to the concept that God's inviting us to have a relationship with Him. And it only happens through Jesus Christ. But when we put our faith in Jesus, who is God in the flesh, He's God who's come close to us. He's God who knows us. When we put our faith in Him, we can have an eternal relationship with Him. Now, let's bookend the sermon. Can we go back to Coach Leach for just a minute? Tuesday, there's going to be a memorial service. Some of you are probably going to go. I'm not planning to. It's not that i'm against a funeral or a memorial it's just i have a sense of what i think will happen i think there'll be some people who get up and talk about coach leach being a family man he loved his family they're hurting that's my guess they're hurting stunned overwhelmed somebody will get up and talk about how much he loved his wife and children and rightfully so i think he did Somebody's going to get up and talk about him being a faithful friend. I mean, he influenced a lot of coaches that are in the profession today. And not only did he influence how they coach, but he's also been their friend. Some of them have said this week in their messages about him, how he was texting them to check on them regularly. There's no doubt he's been a successful coach. I think he probably ought to get in the Hall of Fame. He's that successful. He's innovative. So somebody's gonna talk about the success he has as a coach. There's no doubt he's innovative. The air raid offense that he created, it was kind of unprecedented when it first came into existence and he was one of the founders of it. Gave it its name so that it kind of caught on. He was innovative and there's no doubt he was unique. My favorite moment in all that I know about him is when he threw those chairs down this year when the wide receivers were not doing their job on the field and he just went down the line through the chair. That was my favorite thing. Like, I just thought that's the coolest thing. Like, that gets your attention as a player. Not gonna let you sit down. He's just unique. But will anybody talk about his faith in Jesus? Like the real Jesus, God in the flesh, Jesus. I don't know, and none of us will be able to answer that. That's only a question God can answer, whether he knew Jesus, but I knew he was a Mormon. Mormons talk about Jesus, but it's not the same Jesus. Mormons talk about Jesus as a created being. That's why I wanted to talk about this today. Mormons say that Jesus is a great prophet and a son of God, just like we would, but he's a created being. John says he's the Word, and the Word was God. Not a created being. So if somebody doesn't get up tomorrow or Tuesday and talk about him having faith in Jesus, the one that we're talking about in the Word, and we're celebrating a man's life who's now in hell. Put it very bluntly. And you know what? That makes all of us feel uncomfortable because when it's somebody we identify with and we know or we've seen, we want so desperately for that person to be in heaven when they die. But there's only one way to get in heaven. And that's faith in the Word. Jesus. That's it. it. I don't know if Coach Leach was a believer or not, but I'm just going to say I've done two funerals where I knew specifically the people were not believers. They're the saddest days I've ever had to speak. Because you know what everybody in the audience wanted me to do? Is usher that person with my words into heaven, and I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I had to honestly say, I don't know where this person is. But I want to talk to you about comfort because I know you're hurting. But I couldn't say the person's in heaven because I would have been lying. And they're the hardest funerals I've ever done because both of them outright said, I'm not a believer. I don't want to do another funeral like that. And I don't want to go to one like that. Now, is Coach Leach in heaven? I don't know. I don't know. I hope he knew the Jesus I'm talking about from John's Gospel, chapter 1. But if he didn't, he's in eternity, but he's not with Jesus. This is a wake-up call, my friends. A wake-up call for us as believers. It is our responsibility because we've been entrusted with the Gospel to share it with people before death strikes. And what did we say at the beginning? Death strikes anybody, anytime. Can't keep waiting. we got to be sharing. So in the first century, John said, I can't talk to all the people I know, but I can write a story about Jesus. And what I want them to know is He's the Creator, He spoke it all into existence. And He holds it all together. He's the light. He dispels the darkness and He defeated it. He's the Word. He's God's invitation to say to humanity, I want a relationship. I want to be in your world. I want to know you. And I want you to know me, so I'm inviting you to come into this intimate relationship through my son Jesus. So He's the Word. And so this is what John's saying. Do you know Jesus? Do you really know who Jesus is? And have you surrendered your life to Him? If not, then today, in this very service, could be the decision point, the turning point, The cross point, if you want to call it that, where you can decide to follow the word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, it's been a rough week for our community. We pray for Coach Leach's wife, for his children, for his friends, because they're grieving and for those of us in the room who've experienced loss, we know what grief feels like. It's, it's unending. It's unrelenting. It just hurts. So we pray that you would comfort them in some divine way and help them to keep taking small steps forward in their lives in spite of the loss. But for those of us who are believers today in this room, may His death be a stark reminder that death is coming quickly to many around us. And you've given us the one message that we need to share, and that is that Jesus, He's the answer. He's the only answer for life and for death and for eternity. May our hearts be burdened to be sharers of the good news. And if we've done that well today, we pray that Your Spirit is drawing those who might be in this room to a place of salvation today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would like more information about our church, you can go to www.discovercrosspoint.org and you'll find additional information about our church and our ministries. If this has been an encouragement to you, we hope you'll share it with others and give us a good rating. And that way other people can find it as well. In the meantime, we hope you'll come back next week and join us for next week's sermon.